how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 427, where I spoke with the screenwriter David West Reed, who's known for Shit's Creek, and he's also the showrunner of the new Apple series The Big Door Prize, starring Chris O'Dowd. If you were just to look at Reed's IMDb page, it looks like he came out of nowhere with these two shows, but that's certainly not the case. He studied at NYU and then also went to Juilliard, where he got started on Off-Broadway and then Broadway with the performers. In this interview, we talk about all of this and more. You can also find us on the Creative Screenwriting website. If it's your first time here, make sure to hit that subscribe button, and you can get my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free over at brockswinson.com. Well, I don't know what made me want to be a writer, but I just loved doing it from a really early age. And uh, I started making movies with my friends when I was in elementary school. I'd have them over for sleepovers and then hand out scripts and make them make my little movies with me. Uh, I made one called Jurassic Pork, which was a parody Jurassic Park, of course, uh, my own uh, David Reed's The Christmas Carol. And, uh, you know, so it's something I just naturally gravitated towards. And then I've thought for a long time about trying to do something more stable and secure and something that had a clear path through university. But it was the thing that I kept coming back to in all my free time uh, that just brought me the most joy. So I, you know, I don't know why we're drawn to the things we're drawn to, but I've loved writing and specifically writing for performance uh, for as long as I can remember. And for those who are just looking at IMDb, they're going to think you came out of nowhere with Shit's Creek, but you were doing Broadway. Can you kind of walk us through some of the things you're known for before moving into television? Yeah, I so I studied at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and the Juilliard School um, for playwriting. But I actually started there as a TV writer. And then I had a teacher who really inspired me, a playwriting teacher. And the first play I wrote for him and the first play I wrote in general, um, he shared with his agent and the agent signed me and then sent it to a producer and it was produced off Broadway while I was a student. And then I crossed uh, the floor into the theater department and, you know, in New York, we had all these opportunities as students to go see the best theater in the world for free. And uh, and it was so immediate, you know, the, when you're just starting out writing the idea of, well, how do I, how do you, how does anyone make a TV show or make a movie? It seems so out of reach. Whereas with uh, uh, stage writing, you can bring a few actors together into a little space and have them read it for a, a group of your friends. And it's already feels like uh, a performance. It already feels so much closer to the, to the finish line. So it was really exciting to get into theater. And I, after uh, my off Broadway play, the dream of the burning boy was produced at the roundabout. My second play was a uh, comedy called the performers, um, which was about the backstage uh, of the, adult film awards and that play 
uh, we, we produced on Broadway, um, kind of went straight to Broadway and, uh, I was still a student at the time. And so, um, I, I started out in theater and then, um, uh, and I hadn't worked in TV at all when someone at my agency said, we're looking for Canadian writers for the show called Shit's Creek, which had just done its first season. So I joined in the second season and uh, have been working in TV and, and uh, theater since then. With such early success, did you feel any like golden handcuffs? I heard Aaron Sorkin say when he wrote A Few Good Men, he felt like, I can't make any mistakes now. Did you feel anything like that early on? Well, I had such an early failure with the performers because we opened in Hurricane Sandy and uh, opening it opened and closed in four days uh, and became one of the biggest flops in Broadway. Uh, even though I feel really proud of the show and audiences were enjoying it, it was a disaster from a uh, producerial perspective. So um at the time it was devastating but i had more experienced writers reaching out to me and saying it's actually great to get this behind you um the playwright david auburn who i hadn't even met wrote me a personal note saying everyone has one of these or more of these and you build a kind of resiliency by uh not having everything go well and i think i learned more from that experience than any of the successes so I, I didn't re really feel golden handcuffs because I blew up so quickly and exploded so quickly. And then <laughs> it's taken a while to kind of work my way back to uh, a place of more continued success. Did you have any like difficult like transitions of kind of the part where you're writing alone versus joining the writer's room? Was it difficult for you? I think what was really helpful is that, um, you know, I don't think you have to go to school to be a writer. In fact, you definitely don't have to go to school to be a writer. But at both NYU and Juilliard, it was more like a writer's room than a traditional class because you're bringing in work every week and sharing with your friends and reading their stuff and having them read your stuff and learning how to give constructive criticism. And every time you read something by someone else, you're also thinking about your own process. And, and so being in that group, I think I'd recommend it to any young writers, whether it's school or just your own group of writing friends, to have uh, constant feedback and to get used to having people say no or yes, or we like that or we don't like that. And thinking about how you can also help other people fulfill their vision, because that's all, that's what it is to be in a writer's room in TV is, you know, you have your own voice, but it's about adapting your voice to what someone else is trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. So when someone brought in a play or a TV script or a movie script in school and you say, OK, I see what story you're trying to tell. Here's how I think you could maybe tell it even better. I mean, uh, that really helped me with my transition to TV. I felt like I was already used to that process. In Shit's Creek, I think they said by like season four, they were almost not getting any notes. But where was it at at season two? I imagine you binged it. It wasn't quite the firestorm yet, though, right? As far as the popularity of the yeah. show? I think it was about four years before we felt like people were watching. I mean, it was really exciting in the early days. Anytime someone famous had seen the show at all. <laughs> right. And uh we were we felt like we were making it a little bit in a bubble in, in Canada. Um uh, and then when it w went on Netflix and um uh there were about four seasons to binge, it it really exploded from there. 
But we had very few notes from the beginning. It was a CBC Canada show uh, for Pop TV in the US. And, you know, it had a lot of star power with Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. And they really let uh, Dan Levy and Eugene Levy do their thing. And um, it was amazing and also unprecedented and something I'll never have again to have a network that was just like, we love it. No notes. Uh, uh, but it really allowed us all to, uh, you know, make the thing that we wanted to make without any interference. And it paid off really well. So when I see like Shit's Creek and I see that um, you're working now, the big door prize for Apple, Apple gives me and all that combined kind of makes me think of like Ted Lasso and shrinking. Do you see shows now? Mm -hmm. It's like a longer timeline characters seem to need to grow on sitcoms like what are the new rules of sitcoms or, or right. is that even the right phrase anymore to call it a sitcom yeah i mean it's all sitcom just means situational and it's all situational to me so i don't think of sitcom as a, a dirty word but i i think there's a difference between a show like Shit's creek that is more traditional in terms of the reset that characters move forward by centimeters or, or inches, but not uh, significantly from episode to episode. And there's a comfort in the familiarity of those places and those people and knowing that you could drop into any episode and, and it's, it's going to be relatively the same. Um, and uh, I think some of the shows like The Big Door Prize or Ted Lasso or uh, Shrinking on, on the streaming services there is more of a there's a kind of a shorter lifespan and there's more expectation of story and plot and moving forward with each episode they feel much more serialized um but i think you know there's room for both and something i learned on schitt's creek was um you know I, the importance of not having characters fundamentally change overnight like uh, mm -hmm. Catherine o'hara was very protective of moira anytime we started to soften her she always fought back and i think for the betterment of the show, uh, there's a scene where the roses are hugging and and Moira comes into the room and is just like, why? You know, and it's just like keeping that distance uh, was so uh, important to the longevity of the show. So um, even on the Big Door Prize, where people are making huge changes, that's the theme of the show is reevaluating your life choices and thinking about where you are and where you could still be um when you when you think about what it means to fulfill your potential i i'm trying to protect the characters as they were formed that these are people who have lived for decades and people grow very slowly in real life if at all and take two steps forward and one step back and it, i think that's how you um not only uh, preserve the longevity of the show but make these characters feel real how important also is like the the juxtaposition? Like we think about growth as linear, but it's, it's definitely kind of a roller coaster. How do you think about good things and bad things happening to your characters? And like, is there a formula to that? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's a formula, but I think, um, you know, I have a slight allergy to uh, shows where people are just all nice and all redeemed and uh you know you know they're more perfect than people that you spend every day with i think it's really important to me that everyone has flaws um and 
especially, you know, the female characters on our show, sometimes in the more standard sitcoms, there's the bumbling uh, husband and the smart wife who uh, points out how bumbling he is and never makes any mistakes. And I love uh, that everyone on our show is constantly making mistakes and because they're trying things. So there's a real relatability and uh, human quality to overreaching and finding comedy in the gap between where someone wants to be or thinks they should be and where they actually are. Um, and I think the comedy of taking big swings, bigger swings than you should take is something that's really appealing to me. Where did the uh, idea for the big door prize first come from? Well, the uh, it's based on a book by Emma Walsh, um, and I read it uh, just before the pandemic, and I was already into that kind of book, which you know, comedy with a slight sci-fi element that allows you to look through at our world in a slightly different lens. Um, and then, as uh, time went on, this the themes of uh, starting over and thinking about the choices you've made and what are the things that you wanted to do that you haven't done, it felt more and more timely and, and prescient. So, you know, in looking at a book to adapt, I think you want something that's an amazing premise, but it, there's room to grow, you know, that there, that it's not, uh, a, you know, the book will always be the book, but it was also a great jumping off point because I felt like you could add characters and change characters and take them further in a series and, um, you know, build an ensemble cast as a way to explore one idea. What, what if there was a machine that could tell you your life's potential from as many different perspectives as possible? Hmm. When you start something like this, are you only thinking about character? Are you also on the side, maybe jotting ideas you want to explore? Like when I saw the trailer, I'm thinking, oh, that's great. People think they need permission to follow their dream. This thing gives them that permission. Um, do you have anywhere where you write the big ideas or, the, or does that come at the very end? Well, it's interesting. I feel like the big ideas kind of flow organically out of the writer's room because you just bring what you're feeling and thinking about and reading about into the room every day and it it's really exciting to to find a group of really smart people who are have all these questions themselves and i think what i try to aim for is to make a show that asks a lot of questions without answering any of them um uh, in terms of the profound questions at least we have to answer some story questions but to to pose things like what does it mean to be happy what does it mean to fulfill your potential do you need to fulfill your potential in order to be happy um you know some of those big questions obviously i pitched when selling the show of you know, this is the story of a town going through a collective midlife crisis and <laughs> examining what it means to be happy. Um, and of course, as a jumping off point with the character of Dusty, someone who's told that he's already reached his peak, thinks he is happy and then is told this is all there is. And what a uh, chasm of anxiety and doubt that opens up for him to be told you know, yeah, you did it and now it's over. Um, but then the other stories, the network of characters and um, the different uh, viewpoints of everyone in this town, that's something that we built week by week in the writer's room. In terms of like moving from a staff writer to the showrunner, what did you learn from Shit Creek that you took with you when you were staffing your own writer's room? How did you go about finding the right group? You know, I read a lot of scripts and tried to find people whose tone I felt aligned with mine. And then you meet people and think, 
do I want to spend every day with this person? Do I, do I think I could be in a room with this person for six or eight or 10 hours a day, every, every day. And, uh, and then it's about luck. You know, the alchemy of the room is something you can't really predict how these different, cause you want different voices and then you just hope they meld together. Um, but I think, you know, something I learned is, is that you're always pushing yourself to expand and build the show, but you also want to lean into the things that are working and things that the audience gravitates towards and not change the show fundamentally, you know, going from a first to second season uh, to allow the audience to spend more time with these characters and in this world and go deeper instead of just, you know, kind of etch a sketch you know shaking it all up and starting again because i think some shows there's a pressure especially when it's a year between seasons it's like we gotta do something totally different but you realize most people have only watched five this for five hours total you know of their life like you may have been working on it for a whole year but people are just getting to know these stories and these characters and um, and so I think I learned about the value of baby steps on Schitt's Creek, that we had 80 episodes and we very slowly built those characters up to where they ended up. And I think there's something really satisfying about that. Are you thinking about the two types of viewers? You've got some viewers who may watch an episode a week and some are who are going to watch them all in a weekend if they can. Do you think about appeasing yeah. those two types with the way you write episodes? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It, it does change uh, knowing that some people are going to binge. And I think the thing we're always wrestling with is how much do we need to remind the audience of what happened the week before? <laughs> you know, you've seen those sitcoms, uh, uh, more traditional sitcoms where there's the very expositional dialogue off the top of like, you know, well, last week I did this and uh, I just assume that everyone's going to skip those recaps. Um, so you're trying to build in clues to remind people in case they're watching these episodes far apart without dumbing it down and hitting them over the head with uh, exposition. So I think that's one of the trickiest things is I would almost rather people binge it because we have so many Easter eggs. We have so many interconnected pieces that we hope people will pick up um uh, if they watch the show through and if they watch the show a second time that they might notice things they didn't notice the first time but then you also do have to build it with the assumption that someone might have waited two weeks to watch the next one and they may have watched a lot of other shows in between um so trying to be as artful as possible and burying that exposition that you really need to appreciate each episode as a standalone thing did you always know you wanted to write comedy? Imagine when you were writing the Broadway about the, the porn stars behind stage. I mean, that has its own comedic elements to it, very obviously. And when you're in the writer's room, you know it's funny because people are laughing. Any advice for people writing comedy that are maybe still writing alone by themselves for now? Uh, I don't know what my advice is. I love character-driven comedy. I think that's why uh, that's the one common element in all the stuff I've been doing. I'm not really a joke writer, like cranking out the one-liners. Um, but I loved, you know, the Christopher Guest movies, which is one of the reasons I was so excited to work with Catherine and Eugene. And I think they're never pushing for laughs. They're just being um, honest and truthful and committed, 
you know, to me, comedy is all about commitment. Like Josh Zagara, who plays Giorgio on our show, you know, in a, a lesser actor's hands, that character could be a buffoon or broad or two-dimensional, but he's so deeply invested and intelligent in how he plays a guy who is probably below his real life intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that commitment is uh, probably the most important thing in comedy. And um, in terms of writing alone, it's hard. You have to share it with people. I do think that everyone goes through a period of imitation as a necessary step towards becoming your, developing your own voice. I know a lot of my early stuff, I feel like I was now looking at it, I feel like I was just copying Christopher Guest or Ricky Gervais or something that I really loved. And then eventually through that, you start to realize, oh no, this is starting to sound more like me. I'm starting to figure out exactly who I am in this spectrum of comedy um, and uh, and to trust your instincts um, uh, a little more. But I think you just have to absorb so much and go through that period of imitation before you really break through um, with your own uh, individual take. I've heard Eugene Levy say that he doesn't consider himself funny. He's just acting and he's very dry and it comes off as funny. Did anything big change for you as far as like having a pilot and then seeing how the actor is on this new show change characters? I imagine they change a bit. If you watch any pilot, they're usually different by the end of the first season to some degree. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, you know, it's also, um, some people might not realize you, this was a straight to series uh, order from Apple. So we wrote the entire season before we had anyone cast. Um, and, you know, Chris O'Dowd was the first person we cast. And then we, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say before we had anyone cast, but uh, we started writing before we had anyone cast. Um, and Chris O'Dowd was the first person we cast and we, we made Dusty Irish, you know, for example, which was not uh, something that was originally planned. But then that led to such great story opportunities of what does it mean? You know, how, how does the immigrant experience of someone who comes to America and thinks this is everything he wants and he's living the American dream and has the perfect wife, kid, house, car, everything, and then is told actually uh, maybe there's something else maybe you could be happier um and then we've you know built in stuff about him having a background in a river dance style group or river prance it's called so you get to be more and more specific when you know the actor and um but sometimes it does change over the course of the season like mary holland who plays nat is one of the funniest people on the planet and if you watch in the early episode she's a little more subdued and as the series goes on when we knew we were writing for Mary, uh, the character of Nat gets bigger and funnier and grows yeah. with her. So, yeah. Did you approach anything? Did you actually, as the showrunner, are you sitting down and having the conversations with the actors about the character? How did you kind of go about that? Did you have any advice from maybe Eugene and Dan about how to how to approach that? Yeah, I mean, I think that show was really different in that they obviously knew Catherine and uh annie and it was you know um uh, i'm not sure what the process was in terms of how many conversations there were but on this show it is such an ensemble show and there are so many different stories we're juggling that i try to take time at the beginning of each season to walk in this office i sit down with each actor and say before they've even read the scripts here's what we have planned for you (laughs) and here's the arc so that when you get these scripts it's not such a surprise because 
you get to see kind of what what are the pieces that we're putting together how are we stringing it together and where do we want to end up with you so that you can read it all with that in mind um but i tend to do it in pieces because I feel like an actor shouldn't always know where they're going because you don't want them to be playing ahead of where they are in the season. So um, I, I would shoot, usually kind of give them the beginning of their arc and some of the headlines, but not tell them everything that's going to happen because mm -hmm. I want them to be roughly where their character is uh, so that they can play those moments as well as possible. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a dialogue and uh, sometimes the actors have their own thoughts and I try to collaborate with them as much as possible. Um, you know, Chris O'Dowd is an amazing improviser and he will play with his lines a lot and add things to almost every scene he does to help it sit in his voice and his sense of humor. So it's, it's definitely a, a, a real team effort. And these episodes, I think, are, are listed as the different character names. Do you see that as just a shift to focus around the overall arc of the story? How do you kind of think about that? Yeah, it's it's a, it's something we wanted to try for the first season. That's it's not a um, at all an anthology show. It's it's really serialized. But as the overarching story moves forward with the central family, Dusty Cass and their daughter Trina. We also uh, dive into different characters' experience in each episode. And so each episode is designed with a slightly different visual style, um, you know, depending on where that character is. Like, for example, episode three is Jacob, and he's dealing with all this internalized anxiety. And we're really shooting it uh, tight to Jacob, following him, leading him, shaky camera. Um, uh, in terms of the sound, it's kind of like voices coming in and out as we are in and out of his headspace. And then there's also a musical theme for each character. So we want every episode to feel like it's a big door prize episode, but there's a different um, style for each character. And that was really fun way to tell different kinds of stories and different kinds of experiences in this overall structure. You know, I love episode six where the character gets sheriff on their card and we leaned into the cowboy uh, uh, motifs with kind of spaghetti western style music and shooting it like a John Ford movie or something. And it's um, so there, there is definitely a different approach to each episode, but then hopefully it always feels like it's part of this bigger whole. I usually kind of wrap up with like asking for breaking advice, but your story is so unique. What did some of those teachers, what were they telling you? Was it just your voice, your character? What's made you stand out as a student at that time that they, as you remember them telling you? Well, the truth is, and the breaking advice is um, that you have to pay your dues and, and be, and I think some people, um, because I, I some, sometimes skip over this part of my story, but I assisted my teacher for a long time before, um, he sh shared my, my play with his agent and I never asked him to do that. I was just looking for opportunities to learn. And I think some people want to skip all the steps and, they, uh, you know, some people think because of some innate talent that they should just go right to the, the finish line. Um, uh, but I think finding opportunities to volunteer, to help out, and to observe the way a writer works is so essential. And, and uh, all the other students at the school were given the same opportunities and not everyone took, took people up on it. So 
really the secret to me is it, it, it's not um, my talents or anything. It's just the um, that I really looked for those opportunities to learn and made the most of them. Uh, just last question. I'm, you probably can't share any details. Can you say anything about the McConaughey Woody Harrelson project you're working on? Yeah, it's really early stages, but um, it's uh, the two of them playing themselves and exploring their real life friendship. Um, uh, and, it, you know, the premise is that uh, Woody and his family move on to Matthew's ranch with Matthew and his family. And it is this kind of blended family comedy. It is a sitcom. It just happens to have two of the biggest movie stars in the world. <laughs> and uh, I think I hope to, you know, imbue a, a blend of comedy, drama, heart and magic uh, in that show as well. But, um, you know, they're two of the most fascinating uh, actors out there. And I think this is going to be unlike anything they've done. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.